I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast for NPR Illinois Community Voices and also for the Front Row Network, where we talk all things Disney. And we have another special interview to bring you today. But before we do, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Craig, and I also have with me my co-host, Brett Rutherford. Well, hello there. (laughs) And also my other co-host, Vanessa Ferguson. Hi, Craig. We just got done with this interview that we're going to present to you, and I've got to say, it's just a wonderful time to get to talk to this individual. She is so lovely and and able to talk to us about her whole career and her really uh, family's place in the Disney legacy, along with how she produces films that shine spotlights all over the world, not even just with the Disney company, um, but just throughout the entire world. So I'm going to give you a brief bio of Leslie Iwerks, and then we're going to get right into the interview. Leslie is a producer, director, and writer. She has directed films such as Recycled Life, which was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary Short Feature, and also an Emmy for The Pixar Story, which was nominated for an Emmy in the Best Nonfiction Special Category. She's also directed documentaries such as The Hand Behind the Mouse, the Ub iWork story. And if you have Disney Plus, you can see her work in the six-episode Imagineering story right now. She is the granddaughter of Ub iWorks, who was a co-creator of Mickey Mouse along with Walt Disney. And she's also daughter to Don iWorks, who is a Disney legend uh, in his own right. And she, again, had such a wonderful interview with us. Can't wait to get into it. Without further ado, here is Leslie Iwerks. Here we are with Beyond the Mouse and NPR Illinois, and we are talking today with Leslie Iwerks. We are so excited to have you join us. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm a big fan of NPR. Absolutely. And we're so glad uh, to have that partnership with them. And we will um, be asking you some questions about your career and just finding out a little bit more about you. And we're very excited about that. And actually, Vanessa has our first question. Yeah. So, Leslie, you know, we're all big Disney fans here. And we assume that, you know, you you could have chosen probably the Disney career of your dreams, but you went into filmmaking. So we wanted to ask why filmmaking and, and how did you get your start? Well, I mean, I think filmmaking is sort of in my blood, you know, having grown up behind the scenes of Disney and and the uh, theme parks and the back lot of Disney. And I sort of got that early taste of it as a kid uh, running around the back lot when my dad was working in the machine shop, designing cameras and projection systems and things. And um, maybe it was just through osmosis. Um, Some of my first memories was walking around the back lot, uh, some of the Western sets, um, that were that they were filming some westerns on the back lot, and I just remember seeing the 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 face, you know, the facade that was real. Then you'd go in through the door, and it was all wood, and you know, just just wood beams in there, and there was nothing inside. And I just got this, I had this memory of like what's real and what's fake, you know. And um, and then the same kind of with 
Disneyland of like what's what's in front of the house and then what's in back of the house. And that was always just intriguing to me of just how things get made and how things are done. Absolutely. And so your first uh, full length documentary was about your grandfather and the Ub Iwerks story. It's wonderful. I definitely suggest that people go and, and check it out. But can you talk a bit about the process of making that, uh, having that become a reality? And then also, did you get to learn a bit more about your family history through that process? Yes. So my grandfather died when I was only one year, one year old. And so I never had the privilege of getting to know him. And so um, as I, as I grew up, I learned all these stories about him through my grandmother and my parents and, and um, all these old stories. And I'd visit my grandmother's house and there were photos on the wall. He and, uh, he and Walt and back in the early days in Kansas city. And it was always intriguing to me, but I, I never really knew enough about him. So I always thought there should be a film about him, you know, some sort of story that really tells his side of things. And so by the time I went to USC film school and graduated, I just thought if there's ever going to be a time for me to do one documentary in my life, it's going to be about him just because I wanted to interview people that knew him and work with him. And so I did. And that gave me an amazing opportunity to get to know him through all the people that knew him firsthand before they passed away. And one of them was Chuck Jones, you know, Warner Brothers director of cartoons, amazing director. And he start, got his start at the Ub Iwerks Studios. And uh, in fact, he used to say people, when I got my job, my first job as a cell washer, it was a cell washer. And uh, cleaning oh, the wow. Yes. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> After, um, you know, they were done photo- photographing them and and people would say, are you working in a jail? You know, they thought he was working, working in a jail, not in a cell washer. Oh no. Well, yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. (laughs) So anyway, it was a a fun experience and um, very gratifying to complete it and have Roy Disney support and get the distribution from the Disney company. And um, you know, it, I think it really brought him back into the public spotlight. Absolutely. Vanessa. Well, um, you talked about this a little bit um, about your dad, Disney legend, Don Iwerks. And so we're just wondering, you know, can you tell us more about maybe being a kid or, or what your dad, um, what his experience was like? I, I just have this um, um, idea in my head that like if my dad was an Imagineer, he'd be sneaking me in and I get to ride all the rides and like go on a small world a hundred times. And <laughs> what was that like? Well, he, uh, my dad was an inventor and a technical guy. So he, um, was always working at the, in the machine shop. So, you know, I was less running around the parks than I was like running or kind of seeing all the machines being built and all the, you know, lenses being crafted and he would come home and he would just, you know, be working on his or whatever he was working on not CAD machine, his um, CAD system, I should say, and, and laying out um, designs for camera systems and lenses. And I would say, I'd look over his shoulder and say, what, what are you doing? You know, I had no idea. And he would explain it to me in great detail. He's very good at detail. And uh, I would just kind of be like, okay, I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, he's brilliant. He's a genius. He and my grandfather both. And I think he really um, had, the, he had a lifetime opportunity to work with my da- my grandfather uh, under his under his guise, under his stu- tutelage, and uh, learned a lot about machining and a lot about technology and a lot about lenses and about optics and uh, you name it. And, you know, he, he was a camera assistant on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
and uh, he he just has always taken to lenses and photography and and um, you know I think all that of working under my grandfather and then ultimately overseeing the machine shop and being head of the machine shop that was the sort of center for all these different technologies that were being developed across the company wide, you know, the parts to the movies, um, you know, that was kind of how I got into an interest, I suppose, in film and cameras and technology and things like that. And both the creativity and the technology. And, you know, one thing that John Lasseter said many years ago when they looked, when they were uh, forming Pixar was, that art challenges technology and technology inspires art. And that was kind of their motto for Pixar. And, you know, I just saw that all my life, really. You know, Walt and Ub did that uh, since they were little, they were young, you know, 20-somethings in Kansas City, Missouri, doing the Alice in Cartoon Land comedies with live action and animation. Right, right. And I love that story, too, where you, uh, I think you took a fake hand and, like, used to scare people with it. I'm like, that's so great. (laughs) Yeah, the uh, the cartoon that Disney put out. Um, yeah, so my dad's hand was he, he was the uh, his hand was the the mold for Lincoln's an- animatronic hand when it when Lincoln came back to Disneyland right. and he did the right size. And so it was actually the day that Walt died. Um, oh. He was getting his mold made, and um, he heard over the loudspeaker that Walt had just passed away. Oh wow! So oh, wow. Went, when he finished wow. the mold. Um, he went up to my grandfather's office and my grandfather said, that's the end of an era. We'll never mm-hmm. see the likes of him again. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about Walton uh, from the, from, they were the very first partners, you know, animation mm-hmm. partners in 23, 1923. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually earlier than that, like I think they met 1919. So, you know, to, to go all the way to 1970, 65, 66 when Walt died, mm-hmm. that's a long time and a long history of the two of them mm-hmm. together. So, that was an interesting day and an interesting memento, I should say, that to have a, a rubber hand that uh, we've had in our house all these years, and I could take it to school and torture people with it. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. So. And you know, uh, what's what's incredible, you mentioned uh, your father working on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Just recently rewatched that movie. It's been, um, they've really digitized it and really brought it to looking so pristine on Disney+. Plus. I would highly recommend that people go out and, and watch that. But it's just incredible the amount of technology, even back in 54, the uh, underwater photography that goes on in that film. Um, just amazing. The shots that they were able to get. And and like you said, you, you come from such a, a creative family. And so uh, you we, we mentioned it in your biography, but it, it hasn't come up yet in this conversation. You're an Academy Award nominee. And so I know uh, Vanessa wanted to talk about uh, Recycled Life. Yeah, well, I, when I was watching um, the film, um, you know, it, it's very different um, than Disney, what we think of like Imagineering story. And and I was just wondering when you're when you're filming, you know, in recycling a recycled life, and you see these people, especially children, living in these unsafe and, and unsanitary conditions. You know, how do you how do you film that? Do you ever find yourself wanting to interfere? with what they're doing for, for their own safety or maybe even your own safety watching, you know, these kids in this environment. You know, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a, a hard line to cross. Um, 
For those that don't know the film Recycled Life, it was a film I did some time ago. I filmed it in Guatemala City, and we came upon this garbage dump that was the largest landfill in Central America. And um, it was a project that we didn't know we were ever going to do. It was just something that I saw, and I went, oh, my God, we've got to tell the story. And so there were thousands of people living and working in this garbage dump. Um, it looked like a Heronius Bosch painting. Uh, Garden of Earthly Delights, I kind of compared it to, you know, just so much going on, just all this activity. And so we ended up filming there for on and off for years, for a number of years. But um, and then it ultimately got Oscar nominated. And um, but it was it was interesting because I always felt it was a powerful story. And there were people we got to get to know in here. They were recycled people that recycled trash. They lived around the outskirts of garbage dump and shanty towns and tin tin huts basically. Um, we did offer, you know, to give to give them help in, in various ways, but um we didn't want to interfere with their lives in any way. Um, and they treated us as equals and we treated them as equals and they knew that we were out for their best interest and um, the money that we raised as a result of that film helped to build the schools down there, um, you know, through Safe Passage, which is a nonprofit founded by the late Hanley Denning. Uh, so we raised, you know, millions of dollars in, in her honor uh, through the film and through donations because of the film. And so those are the things that really make, make it all worthwhile for me. It's fun to do films that are entertaining and inspiring, but there's also the ones that make a difference in humanity and and uh, those are the types of films that i really really love to make now when you uh actually received that call that it's been uh, nominated for an oscar and then you also have been nominated for an emmy for your work on pixar story um is it what what is that experience like is it uh does it drive you even more once you get that level of recognition of your work or is it something that is nice but not necessarily crucial to uh your creative process Right. So it was actually, now I remember the date, 2007. So the same, around the same year, I got nominated for an Emmy for Pixar Story. And they both kind of were back to back. And it was really validating after a lot of hard work. Um, of course, you know, my grandfather and my father both have Oscars. We have two Oscars on our mantle. And of course, uh, it's a lifelong goal for me to, to win my own and have a third up there. Um, but that's not necessarily what drives me. What drives me is just making the most powerful films I can um, and find the most interesting stories to tell and know that there would be an audience for them. Um, not, every, not every film I've done has had a huge audience and not every film has had the impact that I hoped it would. Um, but there's a lot of films that make up for that too, you know? And it's, so to me, I kind of ride that fine line between um, the, the real fun ones and then the ones that I, whatever money that um, I can put into the ones that I think are maybe a little more esoteric, but I just know I can just grab a camera and go and go shoot it uh, with my deep, my cameraman. Um, those are the kinds of real, you know, that's the fun, you know, when it's just grab and go and let's go find the story. We just did that in Macedonia two years ago and filmed um, the fake news uh, cottage industry over there and the impact that these teenagers were having on the fake news industry in uh, in the U.S. And so that's a, a near and dear to my heart project that I'm hoping we'll have to see the light of day this coming fall before the election. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. I've been to Macedonia and it's it's kind of off the radar. And so, so to see it popping up after, you know, our big election cycle, it was 
it was wild. And I'm so glad that you were able to go there and, and, and film that piece because it was, it was kind of bizarre, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's true. It's, I don't mean many people that have been to Macedonia, so that's cool. And the issue now is there's, you know, fake news coronavirus troll farms uh, there, and they are making another dent um, for people that don't know how to discern fake news from truth and people that spread it on Facebook. And I think Facebook has a, a big, is a big player in this as well. And um, it's a big issue and it's something that I am just continually to pursue outside of my other projects. Uh, and uh, you mentioned that you like to tell creative stories and Brett mentioned that he took a pretty deep dive into your work this past weekend. And he wants to ask you a question about another one of your projects. Well, yes. Well, I mean, this, uh, this weekend, I had the opportunity to watch Ella Brennan commanding the table, which was so interesting learning about the New Orleans, well, New Orleans food culture and her influence on food. I also learned how to say New Orleans. It's so many syllables. So that was good. So <laughs> how did you learn about Ella and how did you bring her story to everyone? Well, uh, it was through a mutual friend of Ella's, the, the Brennan family and me. It was Deb Shriver, who was the CEO of Hearst uh, Media Company, and I had done a project with Hearst before. And so she said, would you be interested in doing a film on Ella Brennan? And at the time, I wasn't aware of Ella Brennan. I had only been to New Orleans once many, many years ago uh, for a weekend. And so, you know, but I've always loved the South and the stories that are in the South and um, New Orleans is its own enclave. And so I dug deep into her life as quickly as I could before I traveled out there. And I actually met her for dinner at Commander's Palace. And we had a lovely dinner. And I bet. <laughs> she was uh, somebody I'll never forget because she just asked you so many questions about yourself. She just wants to know everything about you. And, you know, her level of hospitality and grace and charm was, was unlike um, very few people I've ever met. And um, I think if I can aspire to be more like her every day, I'll be a better person for it. I, she, wow. she, she trained me, not trained me. She taught me um, just the, and through the making of the film, what true hospitality is, what, what giving is in a restaurant, what a, making a dining memory is. Um, you know, she created systems. You know, what was interesting about Ella was, you know, she was a woman in a man's world, started the Brennan restaurant chain after her brother Owen died. Um, not chain, but, you know, Brennan's um, in New Orleans. Empire. <laughs> they opened up other restaurants in other cities. But, um, you know, she would always look at, at the business sections in newspapers and see how she could apply various stories in other industries to her own restaurant, mm -hmm. um, whether it be a sports story or, a you know, in a car industry story or you name it, she would apply the principles of that business success and try to bring it into her own restaurant. And so she utilized those techniques with Paul Prudhomme, who came in as a, you know, a, a Cajun chef and, you know, it's where Creole and Cajun crash in the, in the kitchen of Commander's Palace. And she, with, with Emeril Lagasse, you know, really helped to shape him into the uh, celebrity chef that he ultimately became. And, um, just really helped to refine the food of New Orleans and put it on the map. She always wanted to be the Paris of, of the country, you know. So the film was a, a lot of fun. It was on Netflix for like three years and now it's on iTunes. 
And it's just yes. a real <laughs> fun, um, interesting biopic on a woman who made a big difference in the food industry and isn't necessarily all that well known outside mm-hmm. of, you know, this, the New Orleans area. Well, I, I found it fascinating. And, and she was, she was like taken under the wing of Helen McCauley, who was a food editor. And yeah. it was so interesting to hear her stories of, of going to New York and going to really wonderful restaurants. And she was hanging out with James Beard, who she called yeah. Jim, <laughs> which, yeah. like, and Jacques Pepin and Julia Child. And you could tell that she, that, that was such a wonderful influence on her life and her experiences there. And it was kind of, she was just very humble and she, it was a very, a very much a learning experience. And so that was interesting. So thank you for bringing her story to all of us. Well, so, thank you for watching. I enjoyed and that. I, and I'm actually writing a series, a narrative series now based on her life. So, Oh, how cool. So you brought that, you brought her story to life. So. We will have to we'll have to put links or something. We'll have to tell everyone about it because, yeah. as you said, it's available on <laughs> iTunes. So, you know, that's a a good thing. So yeah, Amazon and you know other other streaming sites as well. Yeah, so. I enjoyed it very much. So, thanks. Yeah, I, I was familiar with your work and before this, but I did, as I said, you know, kind of this deep dive into to all of your work and i feel as though i'm ready to to at least uh work on the the leslie iWorks story so with your blessings uh no, <laughs> just kidding so just kidding i enjoyed all of it so thank you well if you uh it they asked me to tell my story in the uh, TED, tedx talk that i did in torino mm-hmm. italy and um, that was kind of a backdrop of a little bit of how I got into documentaries and, and what inspired me and family backdrop and all that. So you can check that out too on TEDx. We did. It's good. I mean, it's, <laughs> we've, yeah, we've done, we've tried to do enough research that, uh, that we were ready for you. So yeah. Well, that's why NPR is as good as NPR is. Yes. <laughs> and one of the things, uh, you know, of course, what we as Disney fans as well, um, it's really interesting going back to pre-launch of Disney Plus because everyone was talking about The Mandalorian and it was going to be this great show and John Favreau does such an amazing job with that. But I think that us Disney Parks fans in particular were so intrigued by the Imagineering story and that it was going to be, the first episode was going to drop on November 12th. It was going to be available. Uh, and so it was just such a, a an exciting time and getting ready to be able to see that. And then to see this amazing story come out of these six episodes that just really told the the real reason. You know, I, I point that uh, documentary series to uh, if you want to know why I love Disney, why I love the parks, why I love this uh, brand, this company, this story tells that story. And it's such a cool uh, way to be told and so excited that we were able to see it. And just little things that you did, uh, like, for instance, in the title credits, that scene of the door and it says absolutely no photography. And you're, you're opening the door to us and, and showing us Imagineering really for the first time and, and giving a lot of those people that have built this uh, company, their credit and their due. Uh, So we're going to get into the Imagineering story a bit. And I just wanted to know off the top, was there a particular interview that you were really uh, excited about or or that you really felt um, was able to grab the passion that comes into Disney Imagineering? Did you have a favorite or is it kind of like, like children, you can't really have a favorite? 
They, it's, it's tricky. It's a hard one because we interviewed over 200 people for the show all around every park around the world. And we went behind the scenes. We went in the parks. We went, spent a lot of time at Imagineering in Glendale. And we also um, interviewed people that didn't make the film that were third parties talking about Imagineering, you know, and um, ultimately decided to keep it really insular, keep it from the inside out, not uh, people looking at it from, from outside in. And, you know, I would say that we did it in layers, you know, we started with kind of the original legendary Imagineers and I had already known a lot of them already through my family and backdrop and background and whatnot. So I knew, you know, Bob Gurr and had met Rolly Crump before, knew Alice Davis, um, you know, so of course those, those original legendary Imagineers who were family friends, of course, you know, I love spending time with them and just hearing their stories and having the ability and the reason to really deep dive into their background. But um, in addition, I really got a different perspective by interviewing Michael Eisner and also Bob Iger um, about their history, because you're seeing it from the artist's standpoint, what they went through and the ones, the folks that knew Walt and how they how they got guided by Walt and, and all those challenges of building Disneyland. But then when you, when you talk to, to Michael uh, Eisner and Bob Iger, they're coming from it from the top down and, and you're seeing a totally different perspective of what, it, what it's like to run an entire company um, and how they felt they directed um, Imagineering and the shape and the direction of the parks during their tenure. And so that was fascinating to me to really uh, get it, get their story from a business standpoint. And um, you don't always get that access, right? So it was, it was truly um, a great conversation. I mean, the conversations went long, you know, we, neither one of them really seemed like they wanted to, to end the interview. So that was a lot of fun. And again, it's that blending of technology and business. And I, I love the business stories. I gravitate towards great, strong, interesting business stories. Um, and then I, I love the creative and I love the creative process and um, the story of artists. And having documented a number of artists through and technologists in my films from Industrial Light Magic to Pixar to Hand Behind the Mouse um, and even the Hearst Company, you know, I've kind of gotten a feel of what it feels like to be creative within a, within certain business confines or economic confines and um, how to kind of tell those stories that are the challenges of the creative spirit. So, um, so those, those, those are a few people I really enjoyed speaking with, but I enjoyed speaking with everybody because everybody had a great story. And I spent, you know, your, you know, number of trips to Shanghai Disneyland, tromping around the dirt and the mud and boots and hard hat with the, with the various Imagineers who were so kind to give me, you know, bits of their time in between major deadlines and, you know, pressures. Um, So the adventure was, was great. You know, the adventure was really an on and off for seven years filming and editing uh, we never knew it was going to be a, a, a multi-part series. We thought it was going to be a 90-minute film. But by year four, we had so much footage that um, I, you know, went back to Disney and said, would you consider a series? So that's kind of how it, it evolved. We already had six hours cut at that point. So it would have been a lot harder to go back. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that would be, be that would be the editor's cut. That would be the, no. you would have an audience. So, <laughs> really glad they allowed you to uh, to make it into a series. And you know what's interesting about it too is that you really get some of that raw. Um, you, you get to see the the fits and starts of the parks and Imagineering, and you get uh, not only the uh, cheery accomplishments that the parks have had, but also some of the setbacks that they've had. And, and it's just a really, truly um, marvelous look at uh, the parks. And I know, Vanessa, uh, you have a question about Bob Gurr. Yeah, well, we, we got to speak to Bob Gurr the other day, uh, and he's he's a hoot. We love him. Um, but he was talking about the Imagineering story, and he really was just so impressed with the film and with you. And I think he was Really glad to see his uh, basketball shot successfully uh, documented because he said it's the only time he's ever made a hoop. Um, and that was such a great moment. And him signing the wall was such, I mean, it, it really touched us as the audience seeing that. Um, I wondered, was there anything that you weren't able, able to capture that you wanted to, or, or maybe was there something that, you know, hit the editing floor, as they say, uh, that didn't make it into the, the documentary that we would have, you may have wanted to be seen? Well, there, I'm, if I might reverse that, I would say that that basketball scene was something that was very spontaneous. And um, I had known that I wanted to take the audience into places that they would never normally get to go. And that basketball court was something that I knew had always been off limits and um, convinced Disney Plus and Imagineering to to let that happen. And then, you know, they asked, well, who would you want to be up there with you? And I said, well, Bob Gurr, wouldn't it be cool to have Bob Gurr take us into the Matterhorn, you know? So that was something that we just, we, we didn't scout it out necessarily. Um, we just kind of did it. We scouted it out before Bob got there, but then I just kind of guided Bob and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, we're going to follow you in. And, um, and so we did that and we had the basketball up there and, and, you know, in, it was just more of a reflective moment of saying like, you know, here he was at the beginning of this entire attraction saw it in its skeletal formation and helped design the track layout. And then now he's just kind of shooting hoops, you know, and <laughs> when he told me he, he does he doesn't really throw hoops and he did it underhand. I was like, I fell in love with Bob Gurr even more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then when he got it, I was like, awesome. And then, um, and then, you know, I noticed that all these signatures were, were there and he started talking about that. And I said, well, you know, what you hear when I'm saying, asking him, well, would you like to sign it or have you ever signed it? And he goes, no. And like, that was just spontaneous. Yeah. And a lot of people have thought that that was sort of, you know, mm -hmm. planned in advance, but that was just, you know, us having a conversation, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah. but I, as a filmmaker, I, I really, I don't know, feel like I know when to to, to go, go somewhere, you know, when I see something that can be an emotional moment, I can yeah. sort of say, okay, I see this over here. I got Bob. Let's see if we can find a scene that can bring these two together. And, you know, and so, um, you know, that, that was a, a special thing and mm -hmm. wasn't sure whether it was okay for him to sign the wall, but I just said, let's just do it. <laughs> I figured no one's going to fire right. me for that. Hey. So, um, <laughs> right. It, it, you know, it's so interesting because uh, he was actually talking about that exact moment and, and how spontaneity was 
uh, was there and you were able to get to sign uh, the Matterhorn. He was able to do that. And it's just uh, really neat to hear it from both perspectives uh, and be able to hear that. And I think that that's the only time in the series that we hear your voice because you you say, do you want to sign it? Is that, I think that that's you that says that. Yeah. And, yeah. And then I also um, mentioned something in episode six with, um, with uh, Bob Iger and, um, oh. and I, he's talking about the end of Shanghai Disneyland and how it was the most special day and mm-hmm. the opening. And I said, well, where do you go from here? And he said, Disneyland. Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my favorite moments. Like, Cause I was yeah. like, I would have never, I kind of knew he might say that, but I was <laughs> like, it was like that typical, typical question. Well, where do you go from here? You know, yeah. <laughs> what do you do after you won the Super Bowl? I go to Super Disneyland. Bowl. Yeah. So, anyway, he, I fed him the bait and he took it. And he ran away. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Brett, you had a question about Imagineering story as well. Well, yes, actually um, in episode five, uh, of the Imagineering story, Angela Bassett's narration says, one thing Disney designers have no control over is external forces. Whether bracing for a natural disaster, riot, or epidemic, they must prepare for the worst. And in that episode, Daniel Ju talked about the 2011 Japan earthquake, and then he said that Tokyo Disneyland had to open for the country to begin to heal. Since we're, well we're not having an earthquake, but we're in the middle of a a pandemic and Disney parks around the world are starting to reopen um, after being closed for a couple of months is what do you think it is about Disney specifically that gives people assurance that things will be okay? Well, I think it was something that was in the DNA of Disneyland when Walt built Disneyland and had a vision for it, which was, this is a place where families can come together and, and be together and um, experience surprises together and adventure and joy and exhilaration and laugh and uh, eat together and play together and, and sort of be disarmed, you know, Um, basically just get away from your everyday and go into a world that is, completely different and exciting and um you know just playful really like try to get you to be playful to to every adult there's a child in every adult right um and so that's (laughs) that's the that's the motto right so i think when you have these natural disasters that you know, we're all feeling the weight of every single day and we're heavy and we're you know we just you know, I know Marty Sklar didn't necessarily like the idea that you call Disneyland escapism. Um, but, you know, a lot of people call it that. They just say, well, we like to go escape from our daily lives. And um, But as John Hench said, it's, it's really about yeah. reassurance, right? So um, I think this idea that the parks are reassuring um, to take you away from the, the realities of life um, experience the music and the the five senses of Disneyland that Disneyland gives you um, really does um, make a difference in humanity. And, you know, I'm, I'm often marveled at the idea that um, they came up with the motto of the happiest Disneyland, you know, the happiest place on earth. Right. So, I mean, who would think that would be a 
a brand, a branding logo or line that I'm going to create the happiest place on earth. Imagine if that's what you did. You woke up today and said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create something that's going to be the happiest place on earth. Now that's a, that's a tall order. Yeah. And to live up to it and to live up to it 12 parts later um, is, is unbelievable. So I would often marvel walking through each one of these parks at just how, how proud Walt would be today, you know, and, and just how in sheer awe he would be at the people that have followed in his footsteps generation after generation, both artists and engineers and designers and producers and writers and artists, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing how well the business has led, uh, been led by companies, by different, different, uh, um, you know, CEOs um, and different leadership. It's had its pitfalls, which we've seen. It's had its low points when you learn, you learn the hard way. Um, but um, the pendulum swings back and forth. And I think this 60 year uh, look at Imagineering um, allows every business to look at their own, story and say where where are some of the pitfalls that we can avoid or you know the things that we never realized it took to build a build the happiest place on earth so um i think now with the pandemic everybody trying to get back to some sort of normalcy um you know it's special to go to a disneyland it's not normal to go to a disneyland but it's it feels like a place that we want to get back to that feeling of being together, feeling happy again, enjoying life, and um, experiencing what Disney does so well, which is to to create joy and happiness and and, and bring that to audiences. I think it's it's important if you know the Disneyland or the Disney parks are open. It's kind of like a heavy sigh. We'll be okay, you know. So that's what yeah. that's what it really I think, is amazing so. that, that all parks had to. At the same time i mean that's unprecedented mm-hmm. yeah. um so you know it's i think disney is one of the hardest hit companies out there yeah <laughs> yes and <laughs> we'll get through it yeah and disney put out a uh, a short interview that they did with you and talking about uh the five major feats of imagineering and i was really intrigued that your fifth feat was mickey and minnie's runaway railway uh, because that's something that very few people have had the opportunity to experience because it opened on March 4th and the parks closed, I, I want to say around the 17th, 18th, I, I don't know the exact date. Um, but uh, you also mentioned in that interview that there might be a uh, UB iWorks, uh, a little bit of a uh, kind of an Easter egg uh, within the attraction. And so wanted you to talk uh, maybe a little bit about that attraction and if you would spoil the secret for us or you want us to keep searching for the uh, uh, Easter egg inside the attraction. Well, uh, there is, I think it's called, you go through, I haven't ridden the ride. So when I uh, was first introduced to it by Kevin Rafferty who in Charita uh, Carter, uh, who are overseeing creative leads on the show, on the project. Um, they took me through the whole, the whole ride as it was getting built and, and showed me the technology that was, you know, being innovated and, and the projection mapping that was on the walls and, you know, all so much, so much cool stuff goes into every new attraction. That's they're always trying to iterate. Uh, the ride system itself is different. Um, and, you know, they, they just said, well, we have a little surprise to share with you. And then um, they, they said, this is going to be, you're going to go through this one room and it's going to be a, 
uh, it's going to say iWorks Waterworks. Oh, so, wow. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so it's like, yeah. you know, like a big um, industrial kind of room with a lot of different um, factories and things. So I, I haven't been in it yet, and I look forward well, to it. Well, we'll look for that. <laughs> yeah. I work Waterworks. So it was a sweet little nod. And that's the one thing that Imagineering is so cool about. They, they really try to, you know, bring in the Imagineers and the backstories to their yeah. their people, their family, their colleagues into the attractions. Well, you've just made our day because I know that when all three of us, when we go, when we see it, we're going to say, now, Leslie Iwerks told me. Yes, right? told the, us. Yes. The <laughs> Leslie Iwerks told you know, So that would be a lot of fun for us. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Oh, see, we're, we, we're that we're we're Disney geeks. Um, yeah, yeah to, the, to the core. <laughs> <Big fans. laughs> yeah. So. Oh, you guys are <laughs> sweet. Thank you. Yeah, and Vanessa, you wanted to talk. Actually, she referenced her TED talk earlier, and you wanted a you had a question about that. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, great TED talk, and um, I, I really liked how you talked about capturing stories uh, before they are gone forever. Um, and I just wondered how does it feel to interview people um, who may be giving you their last on-camera interview? What's that feeling? Um, what's the weight of that as you're interviewing them? Uh, well, I um, don't necessarily know that that's going to be their last interview. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody that I knew might be gone before I see him again. Um I, it's actually, it's more precious. It's uh, every yeah. time that you're talking to someone, especially, well, you just never know, but when you talk to someone and it, it turns out to be that it, right. you're glad yeah. that their story, you were able to capture their story. And, um, cause we've had that experience here with some of our, uh, some of the, the people that, that we've talked to. So, and well, and I you, mean, that's, you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, talking about the Imagineering story and, and how long of a process that was to film. I'm so grateful that Marty Sklar was so featured in that uh, because even though he had passed by the time that that had come out, it, it's really uh, his legacy looms so large over so much of the Disney parks. And so, um, yeah, so those those opportunities to make sure that we, we capture that history, I think, is the more of the essence of the question. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Marty, as an example of somebody who was the reason I did this series. I mean, Marty, it was Marty's idea. When I screened the Pixar story at Imagineering, they invited me over to screen it at WDI in Glendale, the, the, the Pixar story. And Marty was there. And afterwards, he said, Leslie, when are you going to do the Imagineering story? And I said, wow, Marty, you tell me, I'd love to. Um, so, of course, you know, it was kind of that same feeling when, when John and Ed asked me to do the Pixar story, you know. They're like, would you want to tell our story? And I said, are you kidding? Um, they got Steve Jobs to buy in, and then I was off and running, you know. So, um, same thing with Marty. is like, do you want to tell the Imagineering story? I said, yes. <laughs> so, um you know, that, as I said, led to a number of years, and I would, um, you know, confer with Marty on and off about the history of the company and turning points, and we worked on an outline together that I still have, and I'd go over to his house, and we'd work um, in his office and just talk through, you know, the history, and he was, I'd then I'd go back and kind of write up the treatment, and then I'd send it to him, and then he'd 
you'd say, well, this is correct and this isn't, you know, here's where you need to really focus and I would suggest this and um, here's where you're going to get into some landmines politically and, you know, so he was really helpful with, with all that and I know he wanted the real truth to be told and so um, his his DNA is all through that series and I thought of Marty so much during the making of it and then you know, if I had to do one thing over again, I would have interviewed Marty like one or two more times, um, you know, on camera. I spent a lot of time off camera with him. But then finally, when we came down to his interview, you know, we had like two hours and, you know, I could have used another four hours, six hours with mm-hmm. him and getting all that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, um, you don't always know what you need. So sometimes you over interview and sometimes you under interview, um, especially when something as long as you is this, but, um, going back to the, the Ted talk is, you know, the idea is that stories are stories meant to be told. Um, and I always believe that you've got to share stories, um, that are important to be told. And I started that Ted talk out with, um, the old African proverb, when an old man dies, a library burns. And, um, I think Marty knew that this was a story that needed to be told, was meant to be told, and his his legacy is in it. And when I learned that he passed away um, about a year and a half before the film, the series was finished, it just broke my heart because mm-hmm. I really, really wanted Marty to see this come to fruition. Um, but fortunately, I was able to share it with his wife and his daughter mm-hmm. and um, they were really, you know, touched by the whole series. And, and then for me, you know, I really wanted to dedicate it to Marty. Pulse Degrees was dedicated mm-hmm. to Marty at the very end. So that was my kind of nod to Marty and say, thank you, Marty, for everything you did for this company, for Disney, for the fans and for me. So. Just seems like such an incredible uh, person. I just finished uh, reading Magic Journey, the the new Kevin Rafferty book. And it, it, it he he has such deference for Marty Sklar. It's incredible. But as we begin to to wrap up here, um, just more of a, a philosophical question about uh, documenting history as you do. Um, how do you do you allow your own personal uh, feelings on a particular subject matter to to drive some of the creative uh, process, or do you try to keep your own personal feelings outside of that uh, while you're creating? something, especially when you're so close to the history. You've worked on so many projects that, uh, I mean, certainly some of these projects are your family history. So how do you handle your own personal feelings and emotions when it comes to that? Well, it's a big question. Uh, it depends on the subject. Uh, for Imagineering, I, th- I think it was, a, it was a fine line that I rode between knowing, knowing the company as, as well as I do as far as sort of having one foot in it growing up and one foot out, meaning I'm not an employee of the studio. I haven't worked at the company, you know, as an employee, but I've done films with and for the company. Um, And I feel a real kinship with Disney and I would love to continue to work with Disney in many capacities, um, even outside of documentaries. But um, I also know that when you're telling a story of a, of a, of a, of a subject, whatever that subject is, whether it be the history of a, a division like Imagineering, um, at the end of the day, it's all about humanity and people. 
And people drive these stories and people have challenges, they have emotions, they have these insecurities, they have these vulnerable moments. And we as human beings, as viewers can, can relate to that. And the more I can bring that emotion out and really bring out the conflict that's, that's uh, real, that we can all relate to, the better. And so that's really how we approach the Imagineering story, which was, you know, the turning, start with the turning points and why were these turning points either good or bad, you know, and what inspired them. And, you know, and it was really with so many characters, it's very tricky to know who to put the weight on. And, and um, it became clear pretty early on that I didn't want to give any one person too much weight. I wanted each, I wanted the 60 year story to evolve and everybody would become it would be introduced as their as as they were involved in that particular part of that story, and um, I think we did we did as best a job as we could in balancing that and giving everybody the proper credit. Now, of course, we're going to leave out a lot of people, but um, you know that's just inevitable. And I think when it comes to um, you know, like my family, for example, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, you should have your family in it more and your grandfather should had more, should have had more weight. But I'm also sensitive to that. You know, I mean, I did a film on my grandfather, the, he and my dad, you know, they're, they're in it, but they're just equal to all the other Imagineers who have done so much. And my dad actually was not an official Imagineer. He was a, you know, he worked at the machine shops and he was head of the machine shop. So, but but I think for for that, I had to kind of ride that fine line um, because at the end of the day, we're all pretty humble. Like Imagineers are humble people. It's not about ego. You leave your ego at the door. And that's what I love about, about this group of people and um, probably why I feel such a kinship. And, you know, and I think for other films, um, you do have to have a point of view. You have to, you have to either or you try, it's, it's tricky because when I was starting out, it was, you've got to have a point of view. And if you don't have a point of view, then, you know, why are you a filmmaker? And then if you have a point of view, I found, then you get stigmatized in the, by the critics for having too much of a point of view. And then they attack you for the opposite. So I think on, I've, I've written that fine line on different films and but at the end of the day, I take on a subject because I think that it's got multiple angles for people to analyze and for people to take something away from. And so, for example, my recent film called Sally Lies, you know, I went into the lion's den of the main guy who's overseeing fake news in Macedonia and doing the biggest damage. And I had to completely become objective and I had to reframe my mind and not vilify him and not treat him as is this evil guy. And I really had to have empathy and humanity around, you know, him. He's a, he's a married guy. He's a nice guy. You would never think he was doing anything that seemed evil or, you know? Um, and so that's, that's the hard part when you have to really be just very, you know, straight and narrow and objective. Um, and that's not easy. And um, I think, but I do think that that helps you as a filmmaker because you, you end up letting the audience make their own decision. So I think that's, those are always the tricky parts. You know, there's moments like in Recycled Life when I'm seeing a little girl uh, whose mother is recycling in the garbage dump and she's just sitting there and, you know, she's trying to sleep in the garbage dump while her mother picks trash. 
and um, there's vultures hopping around around her looking for food while her mother's fighting for the same food, you know, things like that literally will make me uh, cry as I'm sitting there behind a camera lens. Um, but I also, you know, know that these are things, the reason I'm making a movie is because I want, I'm trying to show, show something that the world needs to see or make a difference that people can help when, once they see it. Um, and there's so many stories in this world that, you know, we know about, but once you see it in a, in a cohesive way in a movie with music and editing and it's nice and polished and you see it as a real story. Now all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I get it. You know, it's, it's just a different experience than what you're reading bits and pieces and news and seeing on the news and stuff like that. So I enjoy that, that aspect of finding a story that I can actually create and make a, make a pull all those pieces together and make a real story. Brett, you had a final question here. Well, well, okay. I've got to tell you that, uh, let's see, on November 12th, the absolutely first program that I watched on Disney Plus was The Imagineering Story. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, and it was like at two something in the morning, I thought it was supposed to download like later in the day, but I'm like, I'm going to wake up and just see if it's there. Well, it was the first thing I watched. So, but we had to watch them, you know, one at a time. But the thing was, when I was rewatching it this weekend, which was maybe for the fourth time because i'm a fan anyway <laughs> um i noticed that the it was in the notation it was s1 e1 through six so that's season one um is are more seasons a possibility <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the uh, million dollar question that everyone oh. asked me yeah, well, okay. But, but he said, well, I, I was saying that with trying to contain my sheer joy and excitement. But Well, you know, I, so. <laughs> we all, we all uh, would love to. And um, if and when that uh, news drops, I'll let Disney be the one to drop it. How's that? Well, okay, sure, yeah. yes. That's so, um, anyway. <laughs> thank you. Vanessa. Yeah, well, uh, one, one final question for me. Um, you know, we've, we've been in quarantine and we've seen a lot of new creativity come come from that. Um, so our, our question is, is, is uh, this experience uh, – bringing you any new ideas for projects and, and what essentially what's next for you. And if you say Disneyland, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will definitely be going to Disneyland when it opens up. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I've, I've been in the throes of writing um, a lot. And so um, we've been, you know, we we're in negotiations on some new projects uh and so there'll be new things coming out, which I'll be able to announce, um, you know, hopefully soon. Meanwhile, there's a lot of number of narrative projects, I should say, you know, three that I have been um, juggling back and forth in writing. So I'm excited to get to the narrative side of things and, and start developing um, series. And so that's that's been my focus because I've had the um i don't know just the real we're n no one's filming right so i'm busy just writing and um juggling all these different negotiations <laughs> which is yeah. always fun <laughs> i do wonder if looking looking back on all of this you know five ten years from now you we we start to see that there are some creativity 
that has been going on in this time where people had the moment to um, be in their home and writing and things and, and, and what that might bring to the world. Obviously, tragedy everywhere from this pandemic. And, and um, but it's, I guess, the, the optimist in me also wants to think that there's a lot of creativity uh, in the world and a lot that's being done um, by those of you that do create such wonderful work for us all to enjoy. Uh, I guess I'm putting maybe a lot of stake on you. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, one thing that we did do is we spun up a new series that um, we're actually in the editing mode now of on our, our global restaurant story of during COVID. And so it's the hospitality during the most inhospitable times. And so we've had, uh, different restaurateurs, Michelin star restaurants, sending us footage of their day in the life trying to get through COVID and, and what they're doing to innovate and change as a result of it. And ultimately, there's going to be, I mean, there's reports that 85% of restaurants are going to go out of business mm-hmm. out of once this is all back up. And um, it's a real uh, blow to that industry. And so we are allowing a number of people, inviting a number of from Shanghai to India to France, you know, to Spain, to like 10 cities around the country are all filming. And um, I'm doing Skype interviews and with these restaurateurs and these chefs. And it's, it's, uh, it's, there's so much humanity and so much heart and soul into give feeding people. And when somebody can't do what they love most uh, and they're curtailed in that way, it's, it's hard you know, and, um, we're seeing it industry wide in so many different industries, but, um, just with a lens on the hospitality industry, it's been, um, very powerful. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been just a, a sheer joy for us to be able to talk to you about, uh, your entire career, your, your family, and then also, uh, of course, the Imagineering story, which is available on Disney Plus. And, and to our listeners out there, if you have not uh, watched the Imagineering story, you are in for a treat uh, when you turn that on. So uh, thank you again, Leslie, for all of your time. Yeah. And I also welcome anybody that's interested in the Of Iwerks. My dad's got a new book out, you know, the Walt Disney's Ultimate Inventor, The Genius of Of Iwerks. And it's a book, you can get it on Amazon. And it's just Disney Publishing did an amazing job with this beautiful. Oh, wow. So, oh, boy. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to get on Amazon now. So <laughs> thank you so much. Wow. I, I would say you probably just sold at least three copies of that book uh, <laughs> in the next in the next 10 minutes or so. Yes. So uh, thank you again. A lot of Disney, Disney fans out there. So it's a good one. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. How wonderful was that? Just absolutely incredible. Um, it was great to talk to her about her philosophy in filmmaking and how she sees her role uh, as documenting all of this history that's going on around us. We got to talk a little bit about current events, but also a lot of her work throughout her storied career and where she's going. I can't wait to see the next project that Leslie works on. But Vanessa, some thoughts about the interview? Oh, it was just wonderful. Leslie is is so intelligent. You can tell that w- when she's looking into these stories, there's there's nuance, there's details, there's um, context that really frames everything. And she's able to take that all in. And what a creative mind. It was a real pleasure to be able to speak with her. 
absolutely bread. Wow. Again, I just say, wow. I, I've been an admirer of her work um, from the Pixar story, and now I've had the opportunity to, to watch more of her work, and it is a very buried uh, resume, and her work um, is, it, it is wonderful. So I highly recommend checking out everything that's on iTunes or on YouTube. But, uh, yeah, talking with Leslie Iwerks is, is something that I never thought I would be able to do. And now we have. And uh, my life is so much richer for talking to her today, for watching her work, and just can't say enough of uh, what a wonderful experience it was. How about that? Yeah. And, you know, I think if you are coming at her work from a Disney fan, because, of course, she's done uh, the documentary about her grandfather. She's done the Pixar story. She's done Imagineering story, but also check out her other work. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of variety in what she has covered and what she has put to film. And it's all uh, truly magnificent. So check it out. And we can't recommend that enough. We have had such a, a wonderful string of guests here on the podcast from talking to Kevin Lima and Floyd Norman, Bob Gurr, and now Leslie Iwerks. Uh, we will continue to bring some of those interviews to you as we are able to uh, get those interviews and to record those for you. But uh, we will be going back to uh, a bit of a normal schedule in terms of our release dates and uh, where we're going to go from here for the podcast. And we actually recorded, this is a bit of a behind the podcast, about a month ago, we recorded an episode on Enchanted. And uh, that hasn't been released yet because we've had so many fantastic guests to bring you, uh, but we will be releasing that very soon. So we recommend that you follow along with us on NPR Illinois. And then also you can find Beyond the Mouse podcast anywhere that you can get a podcast. We are also part of the Front Row Network. You can find them on social media and on podcasts. Just search the Front Row Network and you'll find them there. Thank you if you've been a loyal listener from the beginning. And also thank you if you are just now coming to us uh, from a lot of these interviews that we've been doing. We really appreciate you listening and hope you continue to listen for us. And also make sure to subscribe and then give us a rating on iTunes or whatever uh, podcast app you're using because that just increases our visibility and allows more listeners to come on and, and listen to us as well. So thank you all so much. It's been such a treat. Thank you again to Leslie for uh, allowing some time out of your day to be able to talk to us. I still just on uh, cloud nine. So I guess that's it for me from beyond the mouse. I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Maybe of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That? I, yeah, that's going to be fun. I got eyes for it.